Our sermon text for the morning is from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for uh, the direction that it gives us for life, how we are to be your holy people who have been called and set apart by you, made holy by the blood of Christ and called to uh, be holy in daily life as God our Father is holy. Father, we ask that you would help us now as this text is read and preached, that it would be imprinted firmly on our hearts so that we would believe it, receive it, and act according to it. Help us to do this by your Spirit, and we ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text is uh, early on in what is known widely as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon early in his ministry. Matthew chapters 5 to 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. And so here, chapter 5, verse 21 to 26, early on in that sermon. And uh, this, this particular teaching of Jesus in the sermon marks the beginning of, uh, of Jesus' divine interpretation of and expansion on the Old Testament law, which is something he'll do for the rest of chapter 5. Here Jesus is addressing the sixth commandment and then the seventh commandment afterward, and and he he goes through and is is expounding on, with divine authority, these, these commands given in the Old Testament. And he does that because he's just said in verses 17 to 20, that he did not come to abolish the law, rather to fulfill the law. And so those who would be called his followers must uh, keep these commandments. He says, whoever relaxes the least of one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Not that we as Christians are bound to obey the Old Testament law in the same way in which the Jews were before the coming of Christ, but that God's people would be marked by uh, holiness, and that holiness is described to us in perfect and accurate detail in the Old Testament law. 
we are enabled to be a holy people because we have God's spirit indwelling us, because we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, because we've been called out of darkness into light, because we have the word of God that guides our way and, and illumines life for us. And so Jesus is expounding these, these commands. As Jesus ups the ante, so to speak, on these commands, applying them to those who would live in his kingdom, we need to remember three things. First, when we hear teaching like this, and, and, and let me back up first to say that when I say ups the ante, I, I mean that. Uh, if you were an Old Testament Jew listening uh, to Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, it would probably be at least somewhat depressing. Ugh, before I couldn't murder. Now I can't even hate my brother. Ugh, you know, before I wasn't allowed to commit adultery. Now I can't even look at a woman with lustful intent. Ugh. You know, so on like that. It was not a case of Jesus coming and saying, you know what, guys, we gave the law a long time ago. We're about due for an update. And so let's just let's just relax these a little bit, shall we? This is, Jesus isn't saying that at all. He's upping the ante. God's, whole, God's people were to be holy in the old covenant, and that holiness was largely external. God's people had to be holy in the new covenant uh, from the heart outward to the actions. And so he is... Uh, raising the bar. And so as he does that, I, I want you to remember three things. First, this kind of teaching from Jesus illustrates our need for the new birth. It illustrates our need for the perfect righteousness of Jesus that is counted to us by faith for the covering of sins by his blood. We don't, we don't reach the standard that Jesus is setting in our strength. If anyone thinks that he can uh, keep this instruction perfectly on his own, um, let him try. Go ahead and, and let me know how that goes. Or actually, better yet, I'll ask your wife uh, how that went, right? Or I'll ask your husband how that went. Oh, so how have they been doing with this, you know, not being angry on their own? Uh, we can lie pretty easily, but our spouses know the truth, don't they? Uh, this really does illustrate the need for the new birth. If, on the other hand, someone is in despair because uh, they know they can't keep these commands on their own. Sometimes we read these, right? And, and uh, our response is uh, like that of the, the tax collector in the temple. You can't even look up to heaven, beat your breast and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's this despair that we would ever be able to be justified. And if that's you, when you hear this, uh, anyone who says, uh, you fool, anyone who insults his brother and so on, is liable to the hell of fire, uh, remember that uh, Jesus kept the law for us and bore the penalty of law-breaking for us. Run to Jesus with your, uh, with your sin. He is all-sufficient and gives uh, full forgiveness and is rich in mercy. And so this illustrates the need for the new birth. Secondly, we need to remember that Jesus died so that we could obey his teaching. And so as new covenant believers, we don't look at this and say, yeah, 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 we're you know, supposed to be holy, but we can't, Jesus died, so I'm going to continue to live life as normal. That's not a Christian response. Remember that 
Paul says in Titus 2, Jesus gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so the Christian response to this is, Lord, help me because I know Jesus died so that we could obey his commands so that the spirit could be given. As we live by the spirit, we for whom Christ died are able to live holy lives. The third thing we need to remember is that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, isn't just a series of commands. If we think of this as just this litany, this list of rules with no context, we will miss the point. No, the Sermon on the Mount is a blueprint, so to speak. It's, it's a blueprint of new covenant life. This is the kingdom charter for the kingdom of the Lord. It's the model of the blessed life in Christ Jesus. And so we ought to heed the sermon and in full dependence on Christ's perfect sacrifice for us and on the enabling of the Holy Spirit, we ought to live out these commands uh, with full assurance of faith in, in Jesus Christ. Well, that's by way of maybe a preface. Here, Jesus is talking about anger. We need to heed Jesus' teaching here. Maybe that sounds like an obvious statement. We need to heed Jesus' teaching everywhere. Um, But I mean it. You need to listen to Jesus here. I need to listen to Jesus here. Perhaps particularly here. Because there are very few sins in our lives that are as justifiable to us as the sin of anger. Is that true for you? That is true for me. I don't know. Maybe you have a perfect grip on your anger. Let's talk afterward. I'd like to know the secret. When I'm angry, I think, well, I'm not angry because I sinned. I'm angry because someone else has sinned against me. Is that what you think? It's so easy to think that. I'm not angry because I sinned. I'm angry because they sinned. And even if I am angry, can you blame me? Look at what I'm dealing with here. Look at what I have to put up with. Of course I'm angry. You can't blame me for being angry. Our sinful hearts want so badly to be justified in our anger. And so we need to pay careful attention to Jesus' words. So in this passage, Jesus is, as I said, interpreting the Mosaic law with divine authority. And he begins with his hearer's understanding of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. Now the sixth commandment was that first part, you shall not murder. The second part is a summary of of the law pertaining to what happens to murderers. Everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. What Jesus is showing us here is that murderous action begins with murderous thoughts and murderous words, with murderous anger and with murderous contempt. In fact, the heart of anger that gives rise to murder, he says, will be judged more strictly. Again, the, the, the ante is raised here. The heart of murder is judged more strictly in the New Covenant than the act of murder 
in the Old Covenant. Well, he says, uh, in summarizing their understanding of the law, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And when he says that, he's referring to provisions set down in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament for human judges to try and condemn a murderer, much like our own law courts today. But when Jesus expounds on the law as the, as the greater Moses, he tells us that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now we should pay attention there. Angry with, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Anger cannot be proven in a court of law. And so this is no longer human judgment that's being spoken of. Rather, God judges the thoughts and intents of the heart and those who grow sinfully angry on the inside, even without acting on their anger. Some of you are good at that. Cool as a cucumber and you're boiling inside. God judges the thoughts and intents of the angry heart there. God takes our sinful anger seriously. He does. If Christ had not borne the penalty for our sinful anger on the cross, how could we hope to stand before a holy God? No hope at all. Can you say that you've never been sinfully angry? Of course, I can't. Thank God for Jesus' sacrifice. Amen? We need this here. It's not only anger which is condemned here, but also contempt. I'm reading out of the ESV, and my translation smooths over the original in verse 22 by saying, whoever insults his brother, that's what I have there. Whoever uh, insults his brother will be liable to the council. Well, the original insult is raka, and it means something like uh, empty head or, or fool. It's an expression of absolute derision. It's similar to the word for fool that's used at the end of the verse, 22. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's the word, by the way, from which we get our English word moron. That's the word. Whoever says, you moron, will be liable to the hell of fire. Taken together, these two words, these phrases, the attitude that Jesus is describing is one of absolute contempt. Contempt is... You know, you can't talk about it without sort of trying to show it on your face. Contempt is that sort of disgust that says that the, the person I'm talking to is beneath my consideration. You're beneath me. Worthless. It's that sneer, the snide, condescending voice, the, the viciously biting sarcasm. Do you know what contempt is? Contempt is just sophisticated anger. It's anger that says, but I won't lower myself to your level. It's gentrified anger. It's, It's anger with a pedigree behind it. It communicates superiority. The person on the receiving end of my contempt isn't even worthy to lick my boots. It's so destructive, this is. So destructive. And it is, I think, so pervasive in our age. We, we live in an age of contempt. Just turn on the TV, watch political discourse. Go online, participate in social media. There's sort of a rule. You may not know this. Maybe you don't 
browse comments on YouTube videos, but there's sort of a, a law of nature that applies to YouTube that says that no matter the YouTube video, no matter the content of the video, if you scroll down far enough in the YouTube comments, someone is going to call someone else a Nazi, right? You'd be watching a video of a children's birthday party and just scroll down, you Nazi, what is wrong with you, you communist, and it just gets ugly. That's contempt. It's, it's things degrade in that way, the, the moral superiority. I think we forget that the person on the other side of the conversation from us is also made of flesh and blood, made in the image of God, capable of being wounded, just as we are. You know, John Gottman is a uh, secular marriage counselor. And Gottman, uh, what's unique about him is that he, he studied uh, particular couples. He, he conducted a study of 195 couples for about 40 years from newlyweds on. And the point of the study was to see what factors he could identify early in marriage that would lead to divorce within seven years. And what factors, on the other hand, uh, made for long-term commitment. The number one cause of divorce, according to John Gottman, that he can tell, he would, he would videotape them for a half an hour, have them have a conversation about anything, and he could predict with 98% accuracy whether they would be divorced in seven years. Isn't that amazing? The number one predictor of divorce, according to John Gottman, is contempt. It's that, you fool. In Christ, of course, our fate isn't sealed by the findings of a secular psychologist. And so I'm not saying, you know, well, if you've ever seen contempt from your spouse in your marriage, you may as well end it now because it's going to end in seven years. I'm not saying that. But think about how destructive contempt is. Even, even unbelievers know that this is destructive. Jesus makes it even clearer for us at the end of the verse. Do you want to deride, despise your brother, your sister for whom Christ died? Then you are liable to the hell of fire. That kind of foulness is never fitting for a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Never, ever, ever. And he is so strong as to say that it may in fact be evidence that you were never converted to begin with, liable to the hell of fire. Of course, if we're going to read this passage and think about Jesus' teaching here, we could bring up the charge that perhaps Jesus failed to practice what he preached concerning anger. Didn't Jesus get angry? Didn't he overthrow, overturn tables? Didn't he get angry at those in the synagogue when they showed rampant unbelief in Mark chapter 3? Didn't he, in this same gospel in Matthew chapter 23, call the Pharisees blind fools? That's the same word, moron. He did all of that. Yes, yes, yes. All righteous anger. But here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is not referring to the indignation that a righteous man feels at a world in rebellion against God. He's not even referring to the anger sparked by the oppression of the wicked. He's talking about anger in personal relationships. 
It is one thing for Jesus to say, of the Pharisees as a whole, you blind fools, you whitewashed tombs, you look good on the outside and inside you're full of dead men's bones. But in speaking to a specific person with whom he's in a personal relationship, we never see Jesus act this way. And this goes right to the heart of our sinful anger. Our Lord is so wise, isn't he? Jesus cuts to the heart of our sinful anger. We grow sinfully angry most often with the people close to us. Have you ever met somebody who, who really, like their thing, their shtick, is that they want to be like Jesus when it comes to like overturning tables? They've got a bone to pick with a sinful world. And, and you can do that righteously. We're called to hate the things that the Lord hates. A Christian is known not only by what he loves, but by what he hates. But I find so often with those men, or it's usually men, could be a woman, with those men who want to tell us how tough they are and how righteous their anger is, uh, it's the ones close to them that bear the brunt of it. And that's not righteous anger. That's sinful anger. We grow angry with our friends, our neighbors, our family, our spouses, our children. That is what Jesus wants us to deal with. How does Jesus tell us that we ought to deal with sinful anger? That's the question. You know, in the early Middle Ages, if you can think back that far, Pastors would often recommend that if someone was struggling with a particular kind of sin, then they ought to strive to put on the opposite virtue. So you have this sin, whatever's the opposite of that, try to put that on. So if someone struggled with greed, for example, they were encouraged to practice generosity. If they were gluttonous, they were encouraged to fast and so on like that. It was called the doctrine of uh, contraries. But that practice ultimately doesn't come from the Middle Ages, it comes from the Bible. Paul, for example, tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 that if anyone, let the, let the thief, the one who steals, steal no longer, but what? Rather, let him work with his hands so that he may have to give to the one who is in want. Right? Uh, that's what Jesus is commending here, that, that principle of contraries. Instead of anger and contempt, Jesus tells us in the rest of this passage that I read, to have compassion and to take responsibility. This is in verses 23 to 26. See how Jesus commends compassion to us. In the first example, that of offering a gift at the altar, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. That's not what we might expect. We might expect Jesus to say, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that you're really mad at your brother or there remember that you have something against your brother. But he doesn't say that. How often do we perceive that someone has an issue with us and think, oh, that's their problem. They can deal with it or not. No skin off my back. You hear that someone has a problem with you and you think, well, until they come to me, you know, 
I'm just going to keep quiet. But that sort of clearly marked out, clearly delineated, I'm right, you're wrong approach is what gives anger such power over our hearts in the first place. That lack of compassion for a brother who is struggling is exactly what leads us to see our needs as ultimate, to see our brother's needs as peripheral. And so the call for us is to cultivate compassion. If you're given to anger, cultivate compassion, especially toward those that you find yourself angry toward. Compassion is the sort of thing that will make anger wither on the vine. The heart of anger cannot coexist with the heart of compassion. Forgive me, I, uh, my notes didn't print correctly and I've just noticed this, so I'm pulling them up on my computer. My computer, what is this? Phone, I guess. Let's see if they're on my phone. You're just going to have to forgive me for a second. If not, I'll extemporize. And we're extemporizing. Good. Uh, in both of these anecdotes that Jesus tells, the, the example of the, uh, the, the altar and then of the courtroom, uh, they commend a radical form of responsibility. So not just compassion, but responsibility. Radical responsibility. Responsibility that goes, we might say, above and beyond the call of duty. In both of these applications, it is, in fact, the other person in the conflict who has an issue. Look at it here. You're at the altar. You remember your brother has something against you. Or when your accuser is taking you to court. You're not the one taking your accuser to court. Or you're not the one accusing somebody else and taking them to court. In both of these, it is the other person who has the problem. And yet, Jesus tells us to make the first move. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. And conventional wisdom or worldly wisdom would tell us that this is not our responsibility. He's suing me. It's not my responsibility to make things right with him. He has the issue with me. It's not my responsibility to make things right with him. And we can be childish about this, can't we? It's not my fault. It's his fault. And yet, God's wisdom is so much different from and so much better than conventional wisdom, isn't it? The wisdom of God is not like the wisdom of the world. And so if you have this heart of anger, Jesus would commend to you, command, command, would command you, to practice a radical form of responsibility. It's the answer to what I think is probably one of the oldest questions. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer that Jesus gives is, of course, of course you are. Because as Paul tells us, we are members of one another. And so here's my brother over here. 
Maybe he's, maybe he's the problem. Maybe he's got the problem. But I've got the heart of anger. I'm angry because he's let his problem come between him and I in our relationship. But I decide I'm going to wait. I'm going to let him deal with it. Do we do that in any other circumstance? Do we say in respect to other sins, well, um, I know that you're drowning in your struggle against sin, but I won't lift a finger to help you unless you come and talk to me. Oh, Lord, I hope we don't do that in any of our other relationships or in respect to any other kinds of sin. But that we would take on the nature of, of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and go and bear the reproaches of those who reproach us and go be rich in mercy and compassion. Those, those two habits, attitudes, virtues, practices, compassion and responsibility for others will cause anger to die. Otherwise, you know, we, we can read a passage like this and think, hold on a second. Uh, so he's been talking about murder and then anger. And then in verse 23, he just switches. He just changes the topic entirely. But Jesus isn't random. He didn't lose his train of thought. He didn't you know, fail to check his notes when they printed. He knows exactly what he's saying. He's wise. He's the Lord. And what he's telling us is that if you have this heart of anger, which is murderous and will send you to hell apart from the cleansing work of Jesus Christ, if you have this heart of anger, you don't just get to sort of, the solution isn't to grit your teeth and grin and bear it and go, I won't be angry, I won't be angry, I won't be angry. But to reach out, right? I was talking with an older woman um, who I think is dealing with a lot of bitterness and a lot of anger uh, because... um, she goes to a church and, and their, their, their pastor left. But before he left, he sort of made some leadership decisions, appointed some people and to different positions that she really disagreed with and thought was very unhealthy. And then he left. And she said, he knew he was leaving when he did that. Why on earth would he do that instead of just let us take care of it and all of that? And she's looking at me and she looks angry and she's speak, you know, her voice is raised and she's you know, speaking harshly. And, and I said, well, it, it sounds like this is the kind of thing for which you should call him. I mean, he moved away, but you have his phone number. He's not going to block your calls. He probably has no idea that you're angry with him. Call him. And she said, yeah. And another thing he did. And, and, and she continued on like that. Oh, man, anger's got us, doesn't it? And we think of anger as being the sin of young men. It's not the sin of young men. Maybe particularly the sin of young men. I don't know. I think impatience is more a young men's thing. I've seen a lot of angry old men. A lot of angry old women. A lot of angry young women. Don't don't make excuses for your heart of anger. Rather, practice compassion toward your brothers and your sisters in the Lord. Take responsibility for the relationships that you have with those around you. Go to them. You know, be like the father in, in uh, what is it, Luke uh, 18, I think, who 
seeing his son a long way off, ran to him. Uh, That's how we ought to live in Christ's kingdom. And the thing we need to always remember is that um, we could not have done this first. This is not the kind of command that a Jew could keep or that an unbeliever or a secularist could keep or that any other kind of heathen could keep. Left to ourselves, we were, in the words of Paul in Titus 3, hated by one another and hating one another. Our relationships were irrevocably broken. Despite what things looked like on the surface, society is not in a good place when it's... uh, full of pagans. And yet, there was someone who knew that we were in rebellion against him. Our problem, not his. And he came, and he took the form of a servant, and he lived a righteous life, and he died a sinner's death in order to reconcile us back to God. And so this heart of reconciliation is is the heart of Christ for sinners. It's what Jesus has done for you and for me. And so this is the kind of thing God helping us that we can do with and for and to each other. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I'm so thankful that you have not left us without a witness in the world, but that you've given us your word, and your word is sufficient. It teaches us all things that we need for life and for godliness, that by paying attention to and believing in the promises of your word, we become partakers in the divine nature. Invited in to share in your fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, we ask that you would help us to put aside sinful anger and instead to be compassionate and to love one another to the point of taking responsibility for each other. And Lord, if we have that knot of unrepentant sinful anger, would you melt our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh that loves you and trusts you and seeks to obey your commands. Bless us, we ask, as we seek to do this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your hymn book to number 97. I am the Lord's. Let's stand and sing this last song together. Number 97, I am the Lord's. I am the Lord's, O joy beyond expression, O sweet response to voice of love divine. Faith joyous, yes, to the assuring whisper, Fear not, I have redeemed thee, thou art mine. I am the Lord's, it is the glad confession, wherewith the bride recalls the happy day, when love's I will accepted him forever, the Lord's to love, to honor, and obey. I am the Lord's, yet teach me all it meaneth, all it involves of love and loyalty, of holy service.
Yes, absolute surrender and unreserved obedience unto Thee. I am the Lord's, yes, body, soul, and spirit. Oh, seal them, Lord, forever I am Thine. As Thou beloved in Thy grace and fullness, Forever and forevermore art mine. Amen. Here, this benediction. Man, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and, uh, and, and, and give you peace. May the Lord make it lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it happens a lot. You know? <laughs> think we got it? And, uh, <laughs> 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 well,